Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 10, Chapter 36. Of War and Peace. Volume 3. By Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 10, Chapter 36. Prince Andrew's regiment was among the reserves, which, till after one o'clock, were stationed inactive behind Semenovsk, under heavy artillery fire. Toward two o'clock, the regiment, having already lost more than two hundred men, was moved forward into a trampled oatfield in the gap between Semenovsk and the Knoll Battery, where thousands of men perished that day, and on which an intense, concentrated fire from several hundred enemy guns was directed between one and two o'clock. Without moving from that spot or firing a single shot, the regiment there lost another third of its men. From in front, and especially from the right, in the unlifting smoke the guns boomed, and out of the mysterious domain of smoke that overlaid the whole space in front, quick hissing cannonballs and slow whistling shells flew unceasingly. At times, as if to allow them a respite, a quarter of an hour passed during which the cannonballs and shells all flew overhead but sometimes several men were torn from the regiment in a minute, and the slain were continually being dragged away and the wounded carried off. With each fresh blow less and less chance of life remained for those not yet killed. The regiment stood in columns of battalion, three hundred paces apart, but nevertheless the men were always in one and the same mood. All alike were taciturn and morose. Talk was rarely heard in the ranks and it ceased altogether every time the thud of a successful shot and the cry of stretchers was heard. Most of the time, by their officer's order, the men sat on the ground. One, having taken off his shako, carefully loosened the gathers of its lining and drew them tight again. Another, rubbing some dry clay between his palms, polished his bayonet. Another fingered the strap and pulled the buckle of his bandolier while another smoothed and refolded his leg-bands and put his boots on again. Some built little houses of the tufts in the ploughed ground, or plaited baskets from the straw in the cornfield. All seemed fully absorbed in these pursuits. When men were killed or wounded, when rows of stretchers went past, when some troops retreated, and when great masses of the enemy came into view through the smoke, no one paid any attention to these things. But when our artillery or cavalry advanced, or some of our infantry were seen to move forward, words of approval were heard on all sides. But the liveliest attention was attracted by occurrences quite apart from and unconnected with the battle. It was as if the minds of these morally exhausted men found relief in everyday, commonplace occurrences. A battery of artillery was passing in front of the regiment. The horse of an ammunition cart put its leg over a trace. Hey. Look at the trace, horse. Get her leg out. She'll fall. Ah, they don't see it," came identical shouts from the ranks all along the regiment. Another time general attention was attracted by a small brown dog, coming heaven knows whence, which trotted in a preoccupied manner in front of the ranks with tail stiffly erect, 
till suddenly a shell fell close by, when it yelped, tucked its tail between its legs, and darted aside. Yells and shrieks of laughter rose from the whole regiment. But such distractions lasted only a moment, and for eight hours the men had been inactive, without food, in constant fear of death, and their pale and gloomy faces grew ever paler and gloomier. Prince Andrew, pale and gloomy like everyone in the regiment, paced up and down from the border of one patch to another, at the edge of the meadow beside an oat-field, with head bowed and arms behind his back. There was nothing for him to do, and no orders to be given. Everything went on of itself. The killed were dragged from the front, the wounded carried away, and the ranks closed up. If any soldiers ran to the rear, they returned immediately and hastily. At first Prince Andrew, considering it his duty to rouse the courage of the men and to set them an example, walked about among the ranks, but he soon became convinced that this was unnecessary and that there was nothing he could teach them. All the powers of his soul, as of every soldier there, were unconsciously bent on avoiding the contemplation of the horrors of their situation. He walked along the meadow, dragging his feet, rustling the grass, and gazing at the dust that covered his boots. Now he took big strides trying to keep the footprints left on the meadow by the mowers, then he counted his steps, calculating how often he must walk from one strip to another to walk a mile. Then he stripped the flowers from the wormwood that grew along a boundary rut, rubbed them in his palms, and smelled their pungent, sweetly bitter scent. Nothing remained of the previous day's thoughts. He thought of nothing. He listened with weary ears to the ever-recurring sounds, distinguishing the whistle of flying projectiles from the booming of the reports, glanced at the tiresomely familiar faces of the men of the first battalion, and waited. "'Here it comes. This one is coming our way again,' he thought, listening to an approaching whistle in the hidden region of smoke. "'One, another. Again. It has hit.' He stopped and looked at the ranks. "'No, it has gone over. But this one has hit.' And again he started trying to reach the boundary strip in sixteen paces. A whiz and a thud. Five paces from him, a cannonball tore up the dry earth and disappeared. A chill ran down his back. Again he glanced at the ranks. Probably many had been hit. A large crowd had gathered near the second battalion. Adjutant, he shouted, order them not to crowd together. The adjutant, having obeyed this instruction, approached Prince Andrew. From the other side a battalion commander rode up. "'Look out!' came a frightened cry from a soldier, and like a bird whirring in rapid flight and alighting on the ground, a shell dropped with little noise within two steps of Prince Andrew and close to the battalion commander's horse. The horse first, regardless of whether it was right or wrong to show fear, snorted, reared almost throwing the major, and galloped aside. The horse's terror infected the men. "'Lie down!' cried the adjutant, throwing himself flat on the ground. Prince Andrew hesitated. The smoking shell spun like a top between him and the prostrate adjutant, near a wormwood plant between the field and the meadow. "'Can this be death?' thought Prince Andrew, looking with a quite new, envious glance at the grass, the wormwood, and the streamlet of smoke that curled up from the rotating black ball. I cannot, I do not wish to die. I love life. I love this grass, this earth, this air. 
He thought this, and at the same time remembered that people were looking at him. "'It's shameful, sir,' he said to the adjutant. "'What?' He did not finish speaking. At one and the same moment came the sound of an explosion, a whistle of splinters as from a breaking window-frame, a suffocating smell of powder. Then Prince Andrew started to one side, raising his arm, and fell on his chest. Several officers ran up to him. From the right side of his abdomen blood was welling out, making a large stain on the grass. The militiamen with stretchers who were called up stood behind the officers. Prince Andrew lay on his chest with his face in the grass, breathing heavily and noisily. "'What are you waiting for? Come along!' The peasants went up and took him by his shoulders and legs, but he moaned piteously, and exchanging looks, they set him down again. "'Pick him up! Lift him! It's all the same!' cried someone. They again took him by the shoulders and laid him on the stretcher. "'Ah, God! My God! What is it? The stomach?' That means death. My God!" voices among the officers were heard saying. "'It flew a hair's breadth past my ear,' said the adjutant. The peasants, adjusting the stretcher to their shoulders, started hurriedly along the path they had trodden down to the dressing-station. "'Keep in step!' "'Ah, those peasants!' shouted an officer, seizing by their shoulders and checking the peasants, who were walking unevenly and jolting the stretcher. "'Get into step, Fedor. I say, Fedor," said the foremost peasant. "'Now, that's right,' said the one behind joyfully, when he got into step. "'Your Excellency, eh, Prince?' said the trembling voice of Timokhin, who had run up and was looking down on the stretcher. Prince Andrew opened his eyes and looked up at the speaker from the stretcher into which his head had sunk deep and again his eyelids drooped. The militiamen carried Prince Andrew to the dressing-station by the wood, where wagons were stationed. The dressing-station consisted of three tents with flaps turned back, pitched at the edge of a birch wood. In the wood wagons and horses were standing. The horses were eating oats from their movable troughs, and sparrows flew down and pecked the grains that fell. Some crows, scenting blood, flew among the birch-trees cawing impatiently. Around the tents, over more than five acres, blood-stained men in various garbs stood, sat, or lay. Around the wounded stood crowds of soldiers stretcher-bearers, with dismal and attentive faces, whom the officers keeping order tried in vain to drive from the spot. Disregarding the officers' orders, the soldiers stood leaning against their stretchers, and gazing intently, as if trying to comprehend the difficult problem of what was taking place before them. From the tents came now loud angry cries, and now plaintive groans. Occasionally dressers ran out to fetch water or to point out those who were to be brought in next. The wounded men awaiting their turn outside the tents groaned, sighed, wept, screamed, swore, or asked for vodka. Some were delirious. Prince Andrew's bearers, stepping over the wounded who had not yet been bandaged, took him, as a regimental commander, close up to one of the tents, and there stopped, awaiting instructions. Prince Andrew opened his eyes and for a long time could not make out what was going on around him. He remembered the meadow, the wormwood, the field, the whirling black ball, and his sudden rush of passionate love of life. Two steps from him, leaning against a branch and talking loudly and attracting general attention, stood a tall, handsome, black-haired, non-commissioned officer with a bandaged head. 
he had been wounded in the head and leg by bullets. Around him, eagerly listening to his talk, a crowd of wounded and stretcher-bearers was gathered. "'We kicked him out from there so that he chucked everything. We grabbed the king himself!' cried he, looking around him with eyes that glittered with fever. "'If only reserves had come up just then, lads, there wouldn't have been nothing left of him. I tell you surely!' Like all the others near the speaker, Prince Andrew looked at him with shining eyes and experienced a sense of comfort. "'But isn't it all the same now?' thought he. "'And what will be there? And what has there been here? Why was I so reluctant to part with life? There was something in this life I did not and do not understand.'" End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty-Six Book Ten, Chapter Thirty-Seven, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty-Seven. One of the doctors came out of the tent in a blood-stained apron, holding a cigar between the thumb and little finger of one of his small blood-stained hands, so as not to smear it. He raised his head and looked about him, but above the level of the wounded men. He evidently wanted a little respite. After turning his head from right to left for some time, he sighed and looked down. "'All right, immediately,' he replied to a dresser, who pointed Prince Andrew out to him, and he told them to carry him into the tent. Murmurs arose among the wounded who were waiting. "'It seems that even in the next world only the gentry are to have a chance,' remarked one. Prince Andrew was carried in and laid on a table that had only just been cleared and which a dresser was washing down. Prince Andrew could not make out distinctly what was in that tent. The pitiful groans from all sides and the torturing pain in his thigh, stomach, and back distracted him. All he saw about him merged into a general impression of naked, bleeding human bodies that seemed to fill the whole of the low tent, as a few weeks previously, on that hot August day, such bodies had filled the dirty pond beside the Smolensk road. Yes, it was the same flesh, the same chair a cannon, the sight of which had even then filled him with horror as by a presentiment. There were three operating tables in the tent. Two were occupied, and on the third they placed Prince Andrew. For a little while he was left alone, and involuntarily witnessed what was taking place on the other two tables. On the nearest one sat a Tartar, probably a Cossack, judging by the uniform thrown down beside him. Four soldiers were holding him, and a spectacled doctor was cutting into his muscular brown back. "'Oh! Oh! Oh!' grunted the Tartar, and suddenly lifting up his swarthy, snub-nosed face with its high cheekbones, and burying his white teeth, he began to wriggle and twitch his body and utter piercing, ringing, and prolonged yells. On the other table, round which many people were crowding, a tall, well-fed man lay on his back with his head thrown back. His curly hair, its color, and the shape of his head seemed strangely familiar to Prince Andrew. Several dresses were pressing on his chest to hold him down. One large, white, plump leg twitched rapidly all the time with a feverish tremor. The man was sobbing and choking convulsively. Two doctors, 
one of whom was pale and trembling, were silently doing something to this man's other gory leg. When he had finished with the tartar, whom they covered with an overcoat, the spectacled doctor came up to Prince Andrew, wiping his hands. He glanced at Prince Andrew's face and quickly turned away. "'Undress him. What are you waiting for?' he cried angrily to the dressers. His very first, remotest recollections of childhood came back to Prince Andrew's mind, when the dresser with sleeves rolled up began hastily to undo the buttons of his clothes and undressed him. The doctor bent down over the wound, felt it, and sighed deeply. Then he made a sign to someone, and the torturing pain in his abdomen caused Prince Andrew to lose consciousness. When he came to himself, the splintered portions of his thigh-bone had been extracted, the torn flesh cut away and the wound bandaged. Water was being sprinkled on his face. As soon as Prince Andrew opened his eyes, the doctor bent over, kissed him silently on the lips, and hurried away. After the sufferings he had been enduring, Prince Andrew enjoyed a blissful feeling such as he had not experienced for a long time. All the best and happiest moments of his life, especially his earliest childhood, when he used to be undressed and put to bed, and when leaning over him his nurse sang him to sleep, and he, bearing his head in the pillow, felt happy in the mere consciousness of life, returned to his memory, not merely as something past, but as something present. The doctors were busily engaged with the wounded man, the shape of whose head seemed familiar to Prince Andrew. They were lifting him up and trying to quiet him. "'Show it to me. Oh, 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 oh!' His frightened moans could be heard, subdued by suffering and broken by sobs. Hearing those moans, Prince Andrew wanted to weep. Whether because he was dying without glory, or because he was sorry to part with life, or because of those memories of a childhood that could not return, or because he was suffering and others were suffering, and that man near him was groaning so piteously, he felt like weeping, childlike, kindly, and almost happy tears. The wounded man was shown his amputated leg stained with clotted blood and with the boot still on. Oh, oh, oh! he sobbed like a woman. The doctor, who had been standing beside him, preventing Prince Andrew from seeing his face, moved away. "'My God! What is this? Why is he here?' said Prince Andrew to himself. In the miserable, sobbing, enfeebled man, whose leg had just been amputated, he recognized Anatole Karagin. Men were supporting him in their arms and offering him a glass of water, but his trembling, swollen lips could not grasp its rim. Anatole was sobbing painfully. "'Yes, it is he. Yes, that man is somehow closely and painfully connected with me,' thought Prince Andrew, not yet clearly grasping what he saw before him. "'What is the connection of that man with my childhood and life?' he asked himself, without finding an answer. And suddenly a new unexpected memory from that realm of pure and loving childhood presented itself to him. He remembered Natasha as he had seen her for the first time at the ball in 1810, with her slender neck and arms, and with a frightened happy face ready for rapture, and love and tenderness for her, stronger and more vivid than ever, awoke in his soul. He now remembered the connection that existed between himself and this man who was dimly gazing at him through tears that filled his swollen eyes. He remembered everything 
and ecstatic pity and love for that man overflowed his happy heart. Prince Andrew could no longer restrain himself, and wept tender loving tears for his fellow-men, for himself, and for his own, and their errors. Compassion, love of our brothers, for those who love us and for those who hate us, love of our enemies, yes, that love which God preached on earth and which Princess Mary taught me and I did not understand. That is what made me sorry to part with life. That is what remained for me had I lived. But now it is too late. I know it. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Seven. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Eight of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Eight. The terrible spectacle of the battlefield covered with dead and wounded, together with the heaviness of his head and the news that some twenty generals he knew personally had been killed or wounded, and the consciousness of the impotence of his once mighty arm, produced an unexpected impression on Napoleon, who usually liked to look at the killed and wounded, thereby, he considered, testing his strength of mind. This day the horrible appearance of the battlefield overcame that strength of mind, which he thought constituted his merit and his greatness. He rode hurriedly from the battlefield and returned to the Chevardino Knoll, where he sat on his camp-stool, his sallow face swollen and heavy, his eyes dim, his nose red and his voice hoarse, involuntarily listening with downcast eyes to the sounds of firing. With painful dejection he awaited the end of this action, in which he regarded himself as a participant, and which he was unable to arrest. A personal human feeling for a brief moment got the better of the artificial phantasm of life he had served so long. He felt in his own person the sufferings and death he had witnessed on the battlefield. The heaviness of his head and chest reminded him of the possibility of suffering and death for himself. At that moment he did not desire Moscow, or victory, or glory. What need he for any more glory? The one thing he wished for was rest, tranquillity, and freedom. But when he had been on the Semenov's heights, the artillery commander had proposed to him to bring several batteries of artillery up to those heights, to strengthen the fire on the Russian troops crowded in front of Kanyazkovo. Napoleon had assented, and had given orders that news should be brought to him of the effect those batteries produced. An adjutant came now to inform him that the fire of two hundred guns had been concentrated on the Russians, as he had ordered, but that they still held their ground. Our fire is mowing them down by rows, but they still hold on," said the adjutant. "'They want more,' said Napoleon, in a hoarse voice. "'Sire?' asked the adjutant, who had not heard the remark. "'They want more,' croaked Napoleon, frowning. "'Let them have it!' Even before he gave that order, the thing he did not desire, and for which he gave the order only because he thought it was expected of him, was being done and he fell back into that artificial realm of imaginary greatness, and again, as a horse walking a treadmill thinks it is doing something for itself, he submissively fulfilled the cruel, sad, gloomy, and inhuman role predestined for him. And not for that day and hour alone were the mind and conscience darkened of this man, 
on whom the responsibility for what was happening lay more than on all the others who took part in it. Never to the end of his life could he understand goodness, beauty, or truth, or the significance of his actions which were too contrary to goodness and truth, too remote from everything human, for him ever to be able to grasp their meaning. He could not disavow his actions, belauded as they were by half the world, and so he had to repudiate truth, goodness, and all humanity. Not only on that day, as he rode over the battlefield strewn with men killed and maimed by his will as he believed, did he reckon as he looked at them how many Russians there were for each Frenchman, and, deceiving himself, find reason for rejoicing in the calculation that there were five Russians for every Frenchman. Not on that day alone did he write in a letter to Paris that the battlefield was superb, because fifty thousand corpses lay there. But even on the island of St. Helena, in the peaceful solitude where he said he intended to devote his leisure to an account of the great deeds he had done, he wrote, The Russian war should have been the most popular war of modern times. It was a war of good sense, for real interests, for the tranquillity and security of all. It was purely pacific and conservative. It was a war for a great cause, the end of uncertainties and the beginning of security. A new horizon and new labors were opening out, full of well-being and prosperity for all. The European system was already founded. All that remained was to organize it. Satisfied on these great points and with tranquillity everywhere, I too should have had my Congress and my Holy Alliance. Those ideas were stolen from me. In that reunion of great sovereigns we should have discussed our interests like one family, and have rendered account to the peoples as clerk to master. Europe would in this way soon have been, in fact, but one people, and anyone who travelled anywhere would have found himself always in the common fatherland. I should have demanded the freedom of all navigable rivers for everybody, that the sea should be common to all, and that the great standing army should be reduced henceforth to mere guards for the sovereigns. On returning to France, to the bosom of the great, strong, magnificent, peaceful, and glorious fatherland, I should have proclaimed her frontiers immutable, all future wars purely defensive, all aggrandizement anti-national. I should have associated my son in the empire, my dictatorship would have been finished, and his constitutional reign would have begun. Paris would have been the capital of the world, and the French the envy of the nations. My leisure then, and my old age, would have been devoted, in company with the Empress and during the royal apprenticeship of my son, to leisurely visiting, with our own horses and like a true country couple, every corner of the empire, receiving complaints, redressing wrongs, and scattering public buildings and benefactions on all sides and everywhere. Napoleon, predestined by providence for the gloomy role of executioner of the peoples, assured himself that the aim of his actions had been the people's welfare, and that he could control the fate of millions, and by the employment of power confer benefactions. Of four hundred thousand who crossed the Vistula, he wrote further of the Russian war, half were Austrians, Prussians, Saxons, Poles, Bavarians, Württembergers, Mecklenburgers, Spaniards, Italians, and Neapolitans. The imperial army, strictly speaking, was one-third composed of Dutch, Belgians, men from the borders of the Rhine, Piedmontese, Swiss, Genovese, 
Tuscans, Romans, inhabitants of the 32nd Military Division, of Bremen, of Hamburg, and so on. It included scarcely a hundred and forty thousand who spoke French. The Russian expedition actually cost France less than fifty thousand men. The Russian army, in its retreat from Vilna to Moscow, lost in the various battles four times more men than the French army. The burning of Moscow cost the lives of a hundred thousand Russians, who died of cold and want in the woods. Finally, in its march from Moscow to the Oder, the Russian army also suffered from the severity of the season, so that by the time it reached Vilna it numbered only fifty thousand, and at Kalish less than eighteen thousand. He imagined that the war with Russia came about by his will, and the horrors that occurred did not stagger his soul. He boldly took the whole responsibility for what happened, and his darkened mind found justification in the belief that, among the hundreds of thousands who perished, there were fewer Frenchmen than Hessians and Bavarians. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Eight. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Nine of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Omer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Nine. Several tens of thousands of the slain lay in diverse postures and various uniforms on the fields and meadows belonging to the Davidoff family and to the crown serfs, those fields and meadows where, for hundreds of years, the peasants of Borodino, Gorky, Shavardino, and Semenovsk had reaped their harvests and pastured their cattle. At the dressing-stations the grass and earth were soaked with blood for a space of some three acres around. Crowds of men of various arms, wounded and unwounded, with frightened faces, dragged themselves back to Mujais from the one army and back to Valuevo from the other. Other crowds, exhausted and hungry, went forward led by their officers. Others held their ground and continued to fire. Over the whole field, previously so gaily beautiful with the glitter of bayonets and cloudlets of smoke in the morning sun, there now spread a mist of damp and smoke and a strange acid smell of saltpeter and blood. Clouds gathered, and drops of rain began to fall on the dead and wounded, on the frightened, exhausted, and hesitating men, as if to say, Enough, men, enough! Cease! Bethink yourselves! What are you doing? To the men of both sides alike, worn out by want of food and rest, it began equally to appear doubtful whether they should continue to slaughter one another. All the faces expressed hesitation, and the question arose in every soul, For what, for whom, must I kill and be killed? You may go and kill whom you please, but I don't want to do so any more. By evening this thought had ripened in every soul. At any moment these men might have been seized with horror at what they were doing, and might have thrown up everything and run away anywhere. But though toward the end of the battle the men felt all the horror of what they were doing, though they would have been glad to leave off, some incomprehensible, mysterious power continued to control them, and they still brought up the charges, loaded, aimed, and applied the match, though only one artilleryman survived out of every three, and though they stumbled and panted with fatigue, perspiring and stained with blood and powder. 
The cannonballs flew just as swiftly and cruelly from both sides, crushing human bodies. And that terrible work which was not done by the will of a man, but at the will of him who governs men and worlds, continued. Anyone looking at the disorganized rear of the Russian army would have said that, if only the French made one more slight effort, it would disappear. And anyone looking at the rear of the French army would have said that the Russians need only make one more slight effort and the French would be destroyed. But neither the French nor the Russians made that effort, and the flame of battle burned slowly out. The Russians did not make that effort because they were not attacking the French. At the beginning of the battle they stood blocking the way to Moscow, and they still did so at the end of the battle as at the beginning. But even had the aim of the Russians been to drive the French from their positions, they could not have made this last effort, for all the Russian troops had been broken up, there was no part of the Russian army that had not suffered in the battle, and though still holding their positions, they had lost one half of their army. The French with the memory of all their former victories during fifteen years, with the assurance of Napoleon's invincibility, with the consciousness that they had captured part of the battlefield and had lost only a quarter of their men and still had their guards intact, twenty thousand strong, might easily have made that effort. The French, who had attacked the Russian army in order to drive it from its position, ought to have made that effort, for as long as the Russians continued to block the road to Moscow as before, the aim of the French had not been attained and all their efforts and losses were in vain. But the French did not make that effort. Some historians say that Napoleon need only have used his old guards, who were intact, and the battle would have been won. To speak of what would have happened had Napoleon sent his guards is like talking of what would happen if autumn became spring. It could not be. Napoleon did not give his guards, not because he did not want to, but because it could not be done. All the generals, officers, and soldiers of the French army knew it could not be done, because the flagging spirit of the troops would not permit it. It was not Napoleon alone who had experienced that nightmare feeling of the mighty arm being stricken powerless, but all the generals and soldiers of his army, whether they had taken part in the battle or not, after all their experience of previous battles, when after one-tenth of such efforts the enemy had fled, experienced a similar feeling of terror before an enemy who, after losing half its men, stood as threateningly at the end as at the beginning of the battle. The moral force of the attacking French army was exhausted. Not that sort of victory which is defined by the capture of pieces of material fastened to sticks called standards and of the ground on which the troops had stood and were standing, but a moral victory that convinces the enemy of the moral superiority of his opponent and of his own impotence was gained by the Russians at Borodino. The French invaders, like an infuriated animal that has in its onslaught received a mortal wound, felt that they were perishing but could not stop, any more than the Russian army, weaker by one-half, could help swerving. By impetus gained, the French army was still able to roll forward to Moscow, but there, without further effort on the part of the Russians, it had to perish, bleeding from the mortal wound it had received at Borodino. The direct consequence of the Battle of Borodino was Napoleon's senseless flight from Moscow, his retreat along the old Smolensk road, 
the destruction of the invading army of five hundred thousand men, and the downfall of Napoleonic France, on which at Borodino for the first time the hand of an opponent of stronger spirit had been laid. End of Book Ten, Chapter Thirty Nine. Book Eleven, Chapter One, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, eighteen twelve, Chapter One. Absolute continuity of motion is not comprehensible to the human mind. Laws of motion of any kind become comprehensible to man only when he examines arbitrarily selected elements of that motion. But at the same time, a large proportion of human error comes from the arbitrary division of continuous motion into discontinuous elements. There is a well-known so-called sophism of the ancients consisting in this, that Achilles could never catch up with a tortoise he was following, in spite of the fact that he traveled ten times as fast as the tortoise. By the time Achilles has covered the distance that separated him from the tortoise, the tortoise has covered one-tenth of that distance ahead of him. When Achilles has covered that tenth, the tortoise has covered another one-hundredth, and so on forever. This problem seemed to the ancients insoluble. The absurd answer, that Achilles could never overtake the tortoise, resulted from this. That motion was arbitrarily divided into discontinuous elements whereas the motion both of Achilles and of the tortoise was continuous. By adopting smaller and smaller elements of motion, we only approach a solution of the problem, but never reach it. Only when we have admitted the conception of the infinitely small, and the resulting geometrical progression with a common ratio of one-tenth, and have found the sum of this progression to infinity, do we reach a solution of the problem. A modern branch of mathematics, having achieved the art of dealing with the infinitely small, can now yield solutions in other more complex problems of motion which used to appear insoluble. This modern branch of mathematics, unknown to the ancients, when dealing with problems of motion, admits the conception of the infinitely small, and so conforms to the chief condition of motion, absolute continuity and thereby corrects the inevitable error which the human mind cannot avoid when it deals with separate elements of motion instead of examining continuous motion. In seeking the laws of historical movement, just the same thing happens. The movement of humanity, arising as it does from innumerable arbitrary human wills, is continuous. To understand the laws of this continuous movement is the aim of history. But to arrive at these laws, resulting from the sum of all those human wills, man's mind postulates arbitrary and disconnected units. The first method of history is to take an arbitrarily selected series of continuous events and examine it apart from others, though there is and can be no beginning to any event, for one event always flows uninterruptedly from another. The second method is to consider the actions of some one man, a king or a commander, as equivalent to the sum of many individual wills. Whereas the sum of individual wills is never expressed by the activity of a single historic personage. Historical science, in its endeavor to draw nearer to truth, continually takes smaller and smaller units for examination. But however small the units it takes, 
we feel that to take any unit disconnected from others, or to assume a beginning of any phenomenon, or to say that the will of many men is expressed by the actions of any one historic personage, is in itself false. It needs no critical exertion to reduce utterly to dust any deductions drawn from history. It is merely necessary to select some larger or smaller unit as the subject of observation, as criticism has every right to do, seeing that whatever unit history observes must always be arbitrarily selected. Only by taking infinitesimally small units for observation, the differential of history, that is, the individual tendencies of men, and attaining to the art of integrating them, that is, finding the sum of these infinitesimals, can we hope to arrive at the laws of history. The first fifteen years of the nineteenth century in Europe present an extraordinary movement of millions of people. Men leave their customary pursuits, hasten from one side of Europe to the other, plunder and slaughter one another, triumph and are plunged in despair, and for some years the whole course of life is altered and presents an intensive movement which first increases and then slackens. What was the cause of this movement? By what laws was it governed? asks the mind of man. The historians, replying to this question, lay before us the sayings and doings of a few dozen men in a building in the city of Paris, calling these sayings and doings the Revolution. Then they give a detailed biography of Napoleon and of certain people favorable or hostile to him. Tell of the influence some of these people had on others, and say, that is why this movement took place, and those are its laws. But the mind of man not only refuses to believe this explanation, but plainly says that this method of explanation is fallacious, because in it a weaker phenomenon is taken as the cause of a stronger. The sum of human wills produced the Revolution and Napoleon, and only the sum of those wills first tolerated and then destroyed them. But every time there have been conquests there have been conquerors, every time there has been a revolution in any state there have been great men," says history. And indeed, human reason replies, every time conquerors appear there have been wars, but this does not prove that the conquerors caused the wars, and that it is possible to find the laws of a war in the personal activity of a single man. Whenever I look at my watch and its hands point to ten, I hear the bells of the neighboring church. But because the bells begin to ring when the hands of the clock reach ten, I have no right to assume that the movement of the bells is caused by the position of the hands of the watch. Whenever I see the movement of a locomotive I hear the whistle, and see the valves opening and the wheels turning. But I have no right to conclude that the whistling and the turning of the wheels are the cause of the movement of the engine. The peasants say that a cold wind blows in late spring because the oaks are budding, and really every spring cold winds do blow when the oak is budding. But though I do not know what causes the cold winds to blow when the oak buds unfold, I cannot agree with the peasants that the unfolding of the oak buds is the cause of the cold wind, for the force of the wind is beyond the influence of the buds. I see only a coincidence of occurrences, such as happens with all the phenomena of life and I see that, however much and however carefully I observe the hands of the watch, and the valves and wheels of the engine, and the oak, I shall not discover the cause of the bells ringing, the engine moving, or of the winds of spring. To that I must entirely change my point of view, and study the laws of the movement of steam, 
of the bells and of the wind. History must do the same. And attempts in this direction have already been made. To study the laws of history, we must completely change the subject of our observation, must leave aside kings, ministers, and generals, and study the common, infinitesimally small elements by which the masses are moved. No one can say in how far it is possible for man to advance in this way toward an understanding of the laws of history. But it is evident that only along that path does the possibility of discovering the laws of history lie, and that as yet not a millionth part as much mental effort has been applied in this direction by historians as has been devoted to describing the actions of various kings, commanders, and ministers, and propounding the historian's own reflections concerning these actions. End of Book 11, Chapter 1book 11 chapter 2 of war and peace volume 3 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 11 chapter 2 the forces of a dozen european nations burst into russia the russian army and people avoided a collision till smolensk was reached and again from smolensk to borodino the French army pushed on to Moscow its goal, its impetus ever increasing as it neared its aim, just as the velocity of a falling body increases as it approaches the earth. Behind it were seven hundred miles of hunger-stricken, hostile country. Ahead were a few dozen miles separating it from its goal. Every soldier in Napoleon's army felt this, and the invasion moved on by its own momentum. The more the Russian army retreated, the more fiercely a spirit of hatred of the enemy flared up, and while it retreated the army increased and consolidated. At Borodino a collision took place. Neither army was broken up, but the Russian army retreated immediately after the collision, as inevitably as a ball recoils after colliding with another having a greater momentum and with equal inevitability the ball of invasion that had advanced with such momentum rolled on for some distance, though the collision had deprived it of all its force. The Russians retreated eighty miles, to beyond Moscow, and the French reached Moscow and there came to a standstill. For five weeks after that there was not a single battle. The French did not move. As a bleeding, mortally wounded animal licks its wounds, they remained inert in Moscow for five weeks, and then suddenly, with no fresh reason, fled back. They made a dash for the Kaluga road, and, after a victory, for at Malo Yaroslavets the field of conflict again remained theirs, without undertaking a single serious battle, they fled still more rapidly back to Smolensk, beyond Smolensk, beyond the Berezina, beyond Vilna, and farther still. On the evening of the 26th of August, Kutuzov and the whole Russian army were convinced that the Battle of Borodino was a victory. Kutuzov reported so to the Emperor. He gave orders to prepare for a fresh conflict to finish the enemy, and did this not to deceive anyone, but because he knew that the enemy was beaten, as everyone who had taken part in the battle knew it. But all that evening and next day reports came in one after another of unheard-of losses, of the loss of half the army, and a fresh battle proved physically impossible. 
It was impossible to give battle before information had been collected, the wounded gathered in, the supplies of ammunition replenished, the slain reckoned up, new officers appointed to replace those who had been killed, and before the men had had food and sleep. And meanwhile, the very next morning after the battle, the French army advanced of itself upon the Russians, carried forward by the force of its own momentum, now seemingly increased in inverse proportion to the square of the distance from its aim. Kutuzov's wish was to attack next day, and the whole army desired to do so. But to make an attack, the wish to do so is not sufficient. There must also be a possibility of doing it, and that possibility did not exist. It was impossible not to retreat a day's march, and then in the same way it was impossible not to retreat another and a third day's march, and at last, on the first of September, when the army drew near Moscow, despite the strength of the feeling that had arisen in all ranks, the force of circumstances compelled it to retire beyond Moscow. And the troops retired one more last day's march and abandoned Moscow to the enemy. Four people accustomed to think that plans of campaign and battles are made by generals, as any one of us sitting over a map in his study may imagine how he would have arranged things in this or that battle, the questions present themselves, why did Kutuzov during the retreat not do this or that? Why did he not take up a position before reaching Philly? Why did he not retire at once by the Kaluga road, abandoning Moscow, and so on? People accustomed to think in that way forget, or do not know, the inevitable conditions which always limit the activities of any commander-in-chief. The activity of a commander-in-chief does not at all resemble the activity we imagine to ourselves when we sit at ease in our studies examining some campaign on the map, with a certain number of troops on this and that side, in a certain known locality, and begin our plans from some given moment. A commander-in-chief is never dealing with the beginning of any event, the position from which we always contemplate it. The commander-in-chief is always in the midst of a series of shifting events, and so he never can at any moment consider the whole import of an event that is occurring. Moment by moment the event is imperceptibly shaping itself, and at every moment of this continuous, uninterrupted shaping of events, the commander-in-chief is in the midst of a most complex play of intrigues, worries, contingencies, authorities, projects, counsels, threats, and deceptions, and is continually obliged to reply to innumerable questions addressed to him, which constantly conflict with one another. Learned military authorities quite seriously tell us that Kutuzov should have moved his army to the Kaluga road long before reaching Philly, and that somebody actually submitted such a proposal to him. But a commander-in-chief, especially at a difficult moment, has always before him not one proposal but dozens simultaneously. And all these proposals, based on strategies and tactics, contradict each other. A commander-in-chief's business, it would seem, is simply to choose one of these projects. But even that he cannot do. Events and time do not wait. For instance, on the 28th it is suggested to him to cross to the Kaluga road, but just then an adjutant gallops up from Milodorovich asking whether he is to engage the French or retire. An order must be given him at once, that instant. And the order to retreat carries us past the turn to the Kaluga road. And after the adjutant comes the commissary-general, asking where the stores are to be taken, 
and the chief of the hospitals asks where the wounded are to go, and a courier from Petersburg brings a letter from the sovereign which does not admit of the possibility of abandoning Moscow, and the commander-in-chief's rival, the man who is undermining him, and there are always not merely one but several such, presents a new project diametrically opposed to that of turning to the Kaluga road, and the commander-in-chief himself needs sleep and refreshment to maintain his energy, and a respectable general who has been overlooked in the distribution of rewards comes to complain, and the inhabitants of the district pray to be defended, and an officer sent to inspect the locality comes in and gives a report quite contrary to what was said by the officer previously sent and a spy, a prisoner, and a general who has been on reconnaissance, all describe the position of the enemy's army differently. People accustomed to misunderstand or to forget these inevitable conditions of a commander-in-chief's actions describe to us, for instance, the position of the army at Philly, and assume that the commander-in-chief could, on the 1st of September, quite freely decide whether to abandon Moscow or defend it whereas with the Russian army less than four miles from Moscow no such question existed. When had that question been settled? At Drissa, and at Smolensk, and most palpably of all on the 24th of August at Shevardino, and on the 26th at Borodino, and each day an hour and minute of the retreat from Borodino to Fili. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Two Book Eleven, Chapter Three, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Three. When Ermolov, having been sent by Kutuzov to inspect the position, told the field marshal that it was impossible to fight there before Moscow and that they must retreat, Kutuzov looked at him in silence. "'Give me your hand,' said he, and turning it over so as to feel the pulse, added, "'You are not well, my fellow. Think what you are saying.' Kutuzov could not yet admit the possibility of retreating beyond Moscow without a battle. On the Polklani Hill, four miles from the Dorogomilov Gate of Moscow, Kutuzov got out of his carriage and sat down on a bench by the roadside. A great crowd of generals gathered round him, and Count Rostopchin, who had come out from Moscow, joined them. This brilliant company separated into several groups who all discussed the advantages and disadvantages of the position, the state of the army, the plan suggested, the situation of Moscow, and military questions generally. Though they had not been summoned for the purpose, and though it was not so called, they all felt that this was really a council of war. The conversations all dealt with public questions. If anyone gave or asked for personal news, it was done in a whisper, and they immediately reverted to general matters. No jokes, or laughter, or smiles even, were seen among all these men. They evidently all made an effort to hold themselves at the height the situation demanded. And all these groups, while talking among themselves, tried to keep near the commander-in-chief, whose bench formed the center of the gathering, and to speak so that he might overhear them. The commander-in-chief listened to what was being said, and sometimes asked them to repeat their remarks, but did not himself take part in the conversations or express any opinion. After hearing what was being said by one or other of these groups, he generally turned away with an air of disappointment, as though they were not speaking of anything he wished to hear. 
Some discussed the position that had been chosen, criticizing not the position itself so much as the mental capacity of those who had chosen it. Others argued that a mistake had been made earlier, and that a battle should have been fought two days before. Others again spoke of the Battle of Salamanca, which was described by Crossard, a newly arrived Frenchman in a Spanish uniform. This Frenchman and one of the German princes serving with the Russian army were discussing the siege of Saragossa and considering the possibility of defending Moscow in a similar manner. Count Rostopchin was telling a fourth group that he was prepared to die with the city, train bands under the walls of the capital, but that he still could not help regretting having been left in ignorance of what was happening, and that, had he known it sooner, things would have been different. A fifth group, displaying the profundity of their strategic perceptions, discussed the direction the troops would now have to take. A sixth group was talking absolute nonsense. Kutuzov's expression grew more and more preoccupied and gloomy. From all this talk he saw only one thing, that to defend Moscow was a physical impossibility in the full meaning of those words, that is to say, so utterly impossible that if any senseless commander were to give orders to fight, confusion would result but the battle would still not take place. It would not take place because the commanders not merely all recognized the position to be impossible, but in their conversations were only discussing what would happen after its inevitable abandonment. How could the commanders lead their troops to a field of battle they considered impossible to hold? The lower-grade officers, and even the soldiers, who too reason, also considered the position impossible, and therefore could not go to fight, fully convinced as they were of defeat. If Benningson insisted on the position being defended, and others still discussed it, the question was no longer important in itself, but only as a pretext for disputes and intrigue. This Kutuzov knew well. Benningson, who had chosen the position, warmly displayed his Russian patriotism. Kutuzov could not listen to this without wincing, by insisting that Moscow must be defended. His aim was as clear as daylight to Kutuzov. If the defense failed, to throw the blame on Kutuzov, who had brought the army as far as the Sparrow Hills without giving battle. If it succeeded, to claim the success as his own. Or, if battle were not given, to clear himself of the crime of abandoning Moscow. But this intrigue did not now occupy the old man's mind. One terrible question absorbed him, and to that question he heard no reply from anyone. The question for him now was, Have I really allowed Napoleon to reach Moscow, and when did I do so? When was it decided? Can it have been yesterday when I ordered Platov to retreat, or was it the evening before, when I had a nap and told Benningson to issue orders? Or was it earlier still? When, when was this terrible affair decided? Moscow must be abandoned. The army must retreat, and the order to do so must be given. To give that terrible order seemed to him equivalent to resigning the command of the army. And not only did he love power to which he was accustomed, the honors awarded to Prince Pozorovsky under whom he had served in Turkey galled him, but he was convinced that he was destined to save Russia, and that that was why, against the Emperor's wish and by the will of the people, he had been chosen commander-in-chief. He was convinced that he alone could maintain command of the army in these difficult circumstances, and that in all the world he alone could encounter the invincible Napoleon without fear, 
and he was horrified at the thought of the order he had to issue. But something had to be decided, and these conversations around him which were assuming too free a character must be stopped. He called the most important generals to him. "'My head, be it good or bad, must depend on itself,' said he, rising from the bench, and he rode to Philly where his carriages were waiting. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Three Book Eleven, Chapter Four of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Four The Council of War began to assemble at two in the afternoon in the better and roomier part of Andrew Savitsyanov's hut. The men, women, and children of the large peasant family crowded into the back room across the passage. Only Malasha, Andrew's six-year-old granddaughter, whom His Serene Highness had petted, and to whom he had given a lump of sugar while drinking his tea, remained at the top of the brick oven in the larger room. Malasha looked down from the oven with shy delight at the faces, uniforms, and decorations of the generals, who one after another came into the room and sat down on the broad benches in the corner under the icons. Grandad himself, as Malasha in her own mind called Kutuzov, sat apart in a dark corner behind the oven. He sat sunk deep in a folding armchair and continually cleared his throat and pulled at the collar of his coat, which, though it was unbuttoned, still seemed to pinch his neck. Those who entered went up one by one to the field marshal. He pressed the hands of some and nodded to others. His adjutant, Kesarov, was about to draw back the curtain of the window facing Kutuzov, but the latter moved his hand angrily, and Kesarov understood that His Serene Highness did not wish his face to be seen. Round the peasant's deal-table, on which lay maps, plans, pencils, and papers, so many people gathered that the orderlies brought in another bench and put it beside the table. Ermolov, Kesarov, and Tol, who had just arrived, sat down on this bench. In the foremost place, immediately under the icons, sat Barclay de Tolly, his high forehead merging into his bald crown. He had a St. George's cross round his neck and looked pale and ill. He had been feverish for two days, and was now shivering and in pain. Beside him sat Uvarov, who, with rapid gesticulations, was giving him some information, speaking in low tones as they all did. Chubby little Dokturov was listening attentively with eyebrows raised and arms folded on his stomach. On the other side sat Count Osterman Tolstoy, seemingly absorbed in his own thoughts. His broad head with its bold features and glittering eyes was resting on his hand. Raevsky, twitching forward the black hair on his temples as was his habit, glanced now at Kutuzov and now at the door with a look of impatience. Konovznitsyn's firm, handsome, and kindly face was lit up by a tender, sly smile. His glance met Malasha's, and the expression of his eyes caused the little girl to smile. They were all waiting for Benningson, who, on the pretext of inspecting the position, was finishing his savory dinner. They waited for him from four till six o'clock, and did not begin their deliberations all that time but talked in low tones of other matters. Only when Benningson had entered the hut did Kutuzov leave his corner and draw toward the table, but not near enough for the candles that had been placed there to light up his face. 
Bennigsen opened the council with the question, Are we to abandon Russia's ancient and sacred capital without a struggle, or are we to defend it? A prolonged and general silence followed. There was a frown on every face, and only Kutuzov's angry grunts and occasional cough broke the silence. All eyes were gazing at him. Malasha, too, looked at Grandad. She was nearest to him, and saw how his face puckered. He seemed about to cry, but this did not last long. "'Russia's ancient and sacred capital,' he suddenly said, repeating Benningson's words in an angry voice, and thereby drawing attention to the false note in them. "'Allow me to tell you, Your Excellency, that that question has no meaning for a Russian.' He lurched his heavy body forward. "'Such a question cannot be put. It is senseless. The question I have asked these gentlemen to meet to discuss is a military one. The question is that of saving Russia. Is it better to give up Moscow without a battle, or by accepting battle to risk losing the army as well as Moscow? That is the question on which I want your opinion.' And he sank back in his chair. The discussion began. Benningson did not yet consider his game lost. Admitting the view of Barclay and the others that a defense of battle at Philly was impossible, but imbued with Russian patriotism and the love of Moscow, he proposed to move troops from the right to the left flank during the night and attack the French right flank the following day. Opinions were divided, and arguments were advanced for and against that project. Ermolov, Dokturov, and Ryevsky agreed with Benningsen whether feeling it necessary to make a sacrifice before abandoning the capital, or guided by other personal considerations, these generals seemed not to understand that this council could not alter the inevitable course of events, and that Moscow was in effect already abandoned. The other generals, however, understood it, and leaving aside the question of Moscow, spoke of the direction the army should take in its retreat. Malasha, who kept her eyes fixed on what was going on before her, understood the meaning of the council differently. It seemed to her that it was only a personal struggle between Grandad and Longcoat, as she termed Benningson. She saw that they grew spiteful when they spoke to one another, and in her heart she sided with Grandad. In the midst of the conversation she noticed Grandad give Benningson a quick, subtle glance, and then, to her joys, she saw that Grandad said something to Longcoat which settled him. Benningson suddenly reddened and paced angrily up and down the room. What so affected him was Kutuzov's calm and quiet comment on the advantage or disadvantage of Benningson's proposal to move troops by night from the right to the left flank to attack the French right wing. "'Gentlemen,' said Kutuzov, "'I cannot approve of the Count's plan. Moving troops in close proximity to an enemy is always dangerous and military history supports that view. For instance—' Kutuzov seemed to reflect, searching for an example, then, with a clear, naive look at Benningson, he added, "'Oh, yes, take the Battle of Friedland, which I think the Count well remembers, and which was—not fully successful, only because our troops were rearranged too near the enemy.' There followed a momentary pause, which seemed very long to them all. The discussion recommenced, but pauses frequently occurred, and they all felt that there was no more to be said. During one of these pauses Kutuzov heaved a deep sigh, as if preparing to speak. They all looked at him. "'Well, gentlemen,' 
I see that it is I who will have to pay for the broken crockery," said he, and rising slowly he moved to the table. "'Gentlemen, I have heard your views. Some of you will not agree with me. But I—he paused—by the authority entrusted to me by my sovereign and country, order a retreat." After that the generals began to disperse with the solemnity and circumspect silence of people who are leaving after a funeral. Some of the generals, in low tones and in a strain very different from the way they had spoken during the council, communicated something to their commander-in-chief. Malasha, who had long been expected for supper, climbed carefully backwards down from the oven, her bare little feet catching at its projections, and slipping between the legs of the generals, she darted out of the room. When he had dismissed the generals, Kutuzov sat a long time with his elbows on the table, thinking always of the same terrible question. When, when did the abandonment of Moscow become inevitable? When was that done which settled the matter? And who was to blame for it? I did not expect this, said he to his adjutant Schneider when the latter came in late that night. I did not expect this. I did not think this would happen. You should take some rest, your serene highness," replied Schneider. "'But no! They shall eat horse-flesh yet, like the Turks!' exclaimed Kutuzov, without replying, striking the table with his podgy fist. "'They shall, too, if only—' End of Book Eleven, Chapter Four Book Eleven, Chapter Five of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Five. At that very time, in circumstances even more important than retreating without a battle, namely the evacuation and burning of Moscow, Rostopchin, who is usually represented as being the instigator of that event acted in an altogether different manner from Kutuzov. After the Battle of Borodino, the abandonment and burning of Moscow was as inevitable as the retreat of the army beyond Moscow without fighting. Every Russian might have predicted it, not by reasoning, but by the feeling implanted in each of us and in our fathers. The same thing that took place in Moscow had happened in all the towns and villages on Russian soil beginning with Smolensk without the participation of Count Rostopchin and his broadsheets. The people awaited the enemy unconcernedly, did not riot or become excited or tear anyone to pieces, but faced its fate, feeling within it the strength to find what it should do at the most difficult moment. And as soon as the enemy drew near, the wealthy classes went away abandoning their property, while the poor remained and burned and destroyed what was left. The consciousness that this would be so, and would always be so, was and is present in the heart of every Russian. And a consciousness of this, and a foreboding that Moscow would be taken, was present in Russian Moscow society in 1812. Those who had quitted Moscow already in July and at the beginning of August showed that they expected this. Those who went away, taking what they could and abandoning their houses and half their belongings, did so from the latent patriotism which expresses itself not by phrases or by giving one's children to save the fatherland and similar unnatural exploits, 
but unobtrusively, simply, organically, and therefore in the way that always produces the most powerful results. It is disgraceful to run away from danger. Only cowards are running away from Moscow, they were told. In his broadsheets, Rostopchin impressed on them that to leave Moscow was shameful. They were ashamed to be called cowards, ashamed to leave, but still they left, knowing it had to be done. Why did they go? It is impossible to suppose that Rostopchin had scared them by his accounts of horrors Napoleon had committed in conquered countries. The first people to go away were the rich, educated people, who knew quite well that Vienna and Berlin had remained intact, and that during Napoleon's occupation the inhabitants had spent their time pleasantly in the company of the charming Frenchmen, whom the Russians, and especially the Russian ladies, then liked so much. They went away because for Russians there could be no question as to whether things would go well or ill under French rule in Moscow. It was out of the question to be under French rule. It would be the worst thing that could happen. They went away even before the Battle of Borodino, and still more rapidly after it, despite Rostopchin's calls to defend Moscow, or the announcement of his intention to take the wonder-working icon of the Iberian Mother of God and go to fight, or of the balloons that were to destroy the French, and despite all the nonsense Rostopchin wrote in his broadsheets. They knew that it was for the army to fight, and that if it could not succeed it would not do to take young ladies and house-serfs to the Three Hills quarter of Moscow to fight Napoleon, and that they must go away, sorry as they were to abandon their property to destruction. They went away without thinking of the tremendous significance of that immense and wealthy city being given over to destruction, for a great city with wooden buildings was certain, when abandoned by its inhabitants, to be burned. They went away each on his own account, and yet it was only in consequence of their going away that the momentous event was accomplished that will always remain the greatest glory of the Russian people. The lady, who, afraid of being stopped by Count Rostopchin's orders, had already in June moved with her negroes and her women gestures from Moscow to her Saratov estate, with a vague consciousness that she was not Bonaparte's servant was really, simply, and truly carrying out the great work which saved Russia. But Count Rostopchin, who now taunted those who left Moscow, and now had the government offices removed, now distributed quite useless weapons to the drunken rabble, now had processions displaying the icons, and now forbade Father Augustine to remove icons or the relics of the saints, now seized all the private carts in Moscow, and on one hundred and thirty-six of them removed the balloon that was being constructed by Lepich, now hinted that he would burn Moscow, and related how he had set fire to his own house, now wrote a proclamation to the French, solemnly upbraiding them for having destroyed his orphanage, now claimed the glory of having hinted that he would burn Moscow, and now repudiated the deed, now ordered the people to catch all spies and bring them to him and now reproached them for doing so, now expelled all the French residents from Moscow, and now allowed Madame Aubert-Chalmay, the centre of the whole French colony in Moscow, to remain, but ordered the venerable old postmaster Klucharev to be arrested and exiled for no particular offence, now assembled the people at the Three Hills to fight the French, and now, to get rid of them, handed over to them a man to be killed and himself drove away by a back gate 
now declared that he would not survive the fall of Moscow, and now wrote French verses in albums concerning his share in the affair. This man did not understand the meaning of what was happening, but merely wanted to do something himself that would astonish people, to perform some patriotically heroic feat. And, like a child, he made sport of the momentous and unavoidable event, the abandonment and burning of Moscow, and tried with his puny hand now to speed and now to stay the enormous popular tide that bore him along with it. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Five Book Eleven, Chapter Six of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Six. Elaine, having returned with the court from Vilna to Petersburg, found herself in a difficult position. In Petersburg, she had enjoyed the special protection of a grandee who occupied one of the highest posts in the empire. In Vilna she had formed an intimacy with a young foreign prince. When she returned to Petersburg, both the magnate and the prince were there, and both claimed their rights. Elaine was faced by a new problem—how to preserve her intimacy with both without offending either. What would have seemed difficult or even impossible to another woman did not cause the least embarrassment to Countess Bezukhova, who evidently deserved her reputation of being a very clever woman. Had she attempted concealment or tried to extricate herself from her awkward position by cunning, she would have spoiled her case by acknowledging herself guilty. But Elaine, like a really great man who can do whatever he pleases, at once assumed her own position to be correct, as she sincerely believed it to be, and that everyone else was to blame. The first time the young foreigner allowed himself to reproach her, she lifted her beautiful head and, half turning to him, said firmly, "'That's just like a man, selfish and cruel. I expected nothing else. A woman sacrifices herself for you, she suffers, and this is her reward. What right have you, Monseigneur, to demand an account of my attachments and friendships? He is a man who has been more than a father to me." The prince was about to say something, but Elaine interrupted him. "'Well, yes,' said she, "'it may be that he has other sentiments for me than those of a father, but that is not a reason for me to shut my door on him. I am not a man that I should repay kindness with ingratitude. No, Monseigneur that in all that relates to my intimate feelings I render account only to God and to my conscience," she concluded, laying her hand on her beautiful, fully expanded bosom and looking up to heaven. "'But, for heaven's sake, listen to me! Marry me, and I will be your slave!' "'But that's impossible!' "'You won't deign to demean yourself by marrying me, you—' said Elaine, beginning to cry. The prince tried to comfort her, but Elaine, as if quite distraught, said through her tears that there was nothing to prevent her marrying, that there were precedents. There were up to that time very few, but she mentioned Napoleon and some other exalted personages, that she had never been her husband's wife and that she had been sacrificed. 
But the law, religion, said the prince, already yielding. The law, religion! What have they been invented for if they can't arrange that? said Elaine. The prince was surprised that so simple an idea had not occurred to him, and he applied for advice to the holy brethren of the Society of Jesus, with whom he was on intimate terms. A few days later, at one of those enchanting fêtes which Elaine gave at her country house on the Stone Island, the charming Monsieur de Jobert, a man no longer young, with snow-white hair and brilliant black eyes, a Jesuit, a robe court, lay member of the Society of Jesus, was presented to her, and in the garden, by the light of the illuminations and to the sound of music, talked to her for a long time of the love of God, of Christ, of the Sacred Heart, and of the consolations the one true Catholic religion affords in this world and the next. Elaine was touched, and more than once tears rose to her eyes and to those of Monsieur de Jobert, and their voices trembled. A dance, for which her partner came to seek her, put an end to her discourse with her future directeur de conscience, but the next evening Monsieur de Jobert came to see Elaine when she was alone, and after that often came again. One day he took the countess to a Roman Catholic church, where she knelt down before the altar to which she was led. The enchanting middle-aged Frenchman laid his hands on her head and as she herself afterwards described it, she felt something like a fresh breeze wafted into her soul. It was explained to her that this was La Grasse. After that a long-frocked abbe was brought to her. She confessed to him, and he absolved her from her sins. Next day she received a box containing the sacred host, which was left at her house for her to partake of. A few days later Elaine learned with pleasure that she had now been admitted to the true Catholic Church, and that in a few days the Pope himself would hear of her and would send her a certain document. All that was done around her and to her at this time, all the attention devoted to her by so many clever men and expressed in such pleasant, refined ways, and the state of dove-like purity she was now in—she wore only white dresses and white ribbons all the time gave her pleasure, but her pleasure did not cause her for a moment to forget her aim. And as it always happens in contests of cunning that a stupid person gets the better of clever ones, Elaine, having realized that the main object of all these words and all this trouble was, after converting her to Catholicism, to obtain money from her for Jesuit institutions, as to which she received indications before parting with her money, insisted that the various operations necessary to free her from her husband should be performed. In her view the aim of every religion was merely to preserve certain proprieties while affording satisfaction to human desires. And with this aim, in one of her talks with her father confessor, she insisted on an answer to the question, in how far was she bound by her marriage? they were sitting in the twilight by a window in the drawing-room. The scent of flowers came in at the window. Elaine was wearing a white dress, transparent over her shoulders and bosom. The abbé, a well-fed man with a plump, clean-shaven chin, a pleasant firm mouth and white hands meekly folded on his knees, sat close to Elaine, and with a subtle smile on his lips and a peaceful look of delight at her beauty, 
occasionally glanced at her face as he explained his opinion on the subject. Elaine, with an uneasy smile, looked at his curly hair and his plump, clean-shaven, blackish cheeks, and every moment expected the conversation to take a fresh turn. But the abbé, though he evidently enjoyed the beauty of his companion, was absorbed in his mastery of the matter. The course of the Father Confessor's arguments ran as follows. Ignorant of the import of what you are undertaking, you made a vow of conjugal fidelity to a man who, on his part, by entering the married state without faith in the religious significance of marriage, committed an act of sacrilege. That marriage lacked the dual significance it should have had. Yet, in spite of this, your vow was binding. You swerved from it. What did you commit by so acting? A venial or a mortal sin? A venial sin, for you acted without evil intention. If now you married again with the object of bearing children, your sin might be forgiven. But the question is again a twofold one. Firstly, but suddenly Elaine, who was getting bored, said with one of her bewitching smiles, "'But I think that having espoused the true religion, I cannot be bound by what a false religion laid upon me.' The director of her conscience was astounded at having the case presented to him thus with the simplicity of Columbus Egg. He was delighted at the unexpected rapidity of his pupil's progress, but could not abandon the edifice of argument he had laboriously constructed. "'Let us understand one another, Countess,' said he with a smile, and began refuting his spiritual daughter's arguments. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Six Book Eleven, Chapter Seven Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Elmer Maud this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Seven. Elaine understood that the question was very simple and easy from the ecclesiastical point of view, and that her directors were making difficulties only because they were apprehensive as to how the matter would be regarded by the secular authorities. So she decided that it was necessary to prepare the opinion of society. She provoked the jealousy of the elderly magnate, and told him what she had told her other suitor—that is, she put the matter so that the only way for him to obtain a right over her was to marry her. The elderly magnate was at first as much taken aback by this suggestion of marriage with a woman whose husband was alive as the younger man had been, but Elaine's imperturbable conviction that it was as simple and natural as marrying a maiden had its effect on him too. Had Elaine herself shown the least sign of hesitation, shame, or secrecy, her cause would certainly have been lost. But not only did she show no signs of secrecy or shame, on the contrary, with good-natured naivete she told her intimate friends, and these were all Petersburg, that both the prince and the magnate had proposed to her, and that she loved both and was afraid of grieving either. A rumor immediately spread in Petersburg, not that Elaine wanted to be divorced from her husband. Had such a report spread, many would have opposed so illegal an intention. But simply that the unfortunate and interesting Elaine was in doubt which of the two men she should marry. The question was no longer whether this was possible, 
but only which was the better match and how the matter would be regarded at court. There were, it is true, some rigid individuals unable to rise to the height of such a question, who saw in the project a desecration of the sacrament of marriage, but there were not many such, and they remained silent, while the majority were interested in Elaine's good fortune and in the question which match would be the more advantageous. Whether it was right or wrong to remarry while one had a husband living they did not discuss, for that question had evidently been settled by people wiser than you or me, as they said. And to doubt the correctness of that decision would be to risk exposing one's stupidity and incapacity to live in society. Only Maria Dmitrievna Akrasimova, who had come to Petersburg that summer to see one of her sons, allowed herself plainly to express an opinion contrary to the general one. Meeting Elaine at a ball, she stopped her in the middle of the room, and, amid general silence, said in her gruff voice, "'So, wives of living men have started marrying again. Perhaps you think you have invented a novelty. You have been forestalled, my dear. It was thought of long ago. It is done in all the brothels.' And with these words Maria Dmitrievna, turning up her wide sleeves with her usual threatening gesture, and glancing sternly round, moved across the room. Though people were afraid of Maria Dmitrievna, she was regarded in Petersburg as a buffoon, and so of what she had said they only noticed, and repeated in a whisper, the one coarse word she had used, supposing the whole sting of her remark to lie in that word. Prince Vasily who of late very often forgot what he had said and repeated one and the same thing a hundred times, remarked to his daughter whenever he chanced to see her, "'Elaine, I have a word to say to you,' and he would lead her aside, drawing her hand downward. "'I have heard of certain projects concerning—you know—well, my dear child, you know how your father's heart rejoices to know that you—you have suffered so much. But, my dear child, Consult only your own heart. That is all I have to say." And concealing his unvarying emotion, he would press his cheek against his daughter's and move away. Belieben, who had not lost his reputation of an exceedingly clever man, and who was one of the disinterested friends so brilliant a woman as Elaine always has—men friends who can never change into lovers—once gave her his view of the matter at a small and intimate gathering. "'Listen, Belieben,' said Elaine, she always called friends of that sort by their surnames, and she touched his coat-sleeve with her white, beringed fingers. "'Tell me, as you would a sister, what I ought to do. Which of the two? Belieben wrinkled up the skin over his eyebrows and pondered, with a smile on his lips. "'You are not taking me unawares, you know,' said he. "'As a true friend, I have thought and thought again about your affair. You see, if you marry the prince—he met the younger man, and he crooked one finger—you forever lose the chance of marrying the other, and you will displease the court besides. You know there is some kind of connection. But if you marry the old count, you will make his last days happy, and as widow of the grand, the prince would no longer be making a mesalliance by marrying you and Belieben smoothed out his forehead. "'That's a true friend,' said Elaine, beaming, and again touching Belieben's sleeve. "'But I love them, you know, 
and don't want to distress either of them. I would give my life for the happiness of them both." Belieben shrugged his shoulders, as much as to say that not even he could help in that difficulty. Une maîtresse femme, a masterly woman. That's what is called putting things squarely. She would like to be married to all three at the same time," thought he. "'But tell me, how will your husband look at the matter?' Belieben asked, his reputation being so well established that he did not fear to ask so naive a question. "'Will he agree?' "'Oh, he loves me so,' said Elaine, who, for some reason, imagined that Pierre too loved her. "'He will do anything for me.' Belieben puckered his skin in preparation for something witty. "'Even to force you?' said he. Elaine laughed. Among those who ventured to doubt the justifiability of the proposed marriage was Elaine's mother, Princess Kuragina. She was continually tormented by jealousy of her daughter, and now that jealousy concerned a subject near to her own heart, she could not reconcile herself to the idea. She consulted a Russian priest as to the possibility of divorce and remarriage during a husband's lifetime, and the priest told her that it was impossible, and to her delight showed her a text in the Gospel which, as it seemed to him, plainly forbids remarriage while the husband is alive. Armed with these arguments, which appeared to her unanswerable, she drove to her daughter's early one morning so as to find her alone. Having listened to her mother's objections, Elaine smiled blandly and ironically. "'But it says plainly, Whosoever shall marry her that is divorced,' said the old princess. "'Ah, maman, ne dis pas de bêtises. Vous ne comprenez rien. Dans ma position, j'ai des devoirs.' "'Oh, mamma, don't talk nonsense. You don't understand anything. In my position, I have obligations.' said Elaine, changing from Russian, in which language she always felt that her case did not sound quite clear, into French which suited it better. "'But, my dear—oh, mamma, how is it you don't understand that the Holy Father, who has the right to grant dispensations—' Just then the lady companion who lived with Elaine came in to announce that His Highness was in the ballroom and wished to see her. "'No.' Dis-lui que je ne veux pas la voir, que je suis furieuse contre lui, parce qu'il m'a manqué parole. No, tell him I don't wish to see him. I am furious with him for not keeping his word to me. Comtesse, a tu péché miséricorde. Countess, there is mercy for every sin, said a fair-haired young man with a long face and nose as he entered the room. The old princess rose respectfully and curtsied. The young man who had entered took no notice of her. The princess nodded to her daughter and sidled out of the room. "'Yes, she is right,' thought the old princess, all her convictions dissipated by the appearance of His Highness. "'She is right. But how is it that we in our irrecoverable youth did not know it? Yet it is so simple,' she thought as she got into her carriage. By the beginning of August, Elaine's affairs were clearly defined, and she wrote a letter to her husband, who, as she imagined, loved her very much, informing him of her intention to marry N. N., and of her having embraced the one true faith, 
and asking him to carry out all the formalities necessary for a divorce, which would be explained to him by the bearer of the letter. And so I pray God to have you, my friend, in his holy and powerful keeping, your friend Elaine. This letter was brought to Pierre's house when he was on the field of Borodino. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Seven. Book Eleven, Chapter Eight, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Eight. Toward the end of the Battle of Borodino, Pierre, having run down from Ryevsky's battery a second time, made his way through a gully to Knyazkovo, with a crowd of soldiers, reached the dressing-station, and seeing blood and hearing cries and groans, hurried on, still entangled in the crowds of soldiers. The one thing he now desired with his whole soul was to get away quickly from the terrible sensations amid which he had lived that day, and return to ordinary conditions of life, and sleep quietly in a room in his own bed. He felt that only in the ordinary conditions of life would he be able to understand himself, and all he had seen and felt. But such ordinary conditions of life were nowhere to be found. Though shells and bullets did not whistle over the road along which he was going, still on all sides there was what there had been on the field of battle. There was still the same suffering, exhausted, and sometimes strangely indifferent faces, the same blood, the same soldiers' overcoats, the same sounds of firing which, though distant now, still aroused terror, and besides this there were the foul air and the dust. Having gone a couple of miles along the Mojesque road, Pierre sat down by the roadside. Dusk had fallen, and the roar of guns died away. Pierre lay leaning on his elbow for a long time, gazing at the shadows that moved past him in the darkness. He was continually imagining that a cannonball was flying toward him with a terrific whiz, and then he shuddered and sat up. He had no idea how long he had been there. In the middle of the night three soldiers, having brought some firewood, settled down near him and began lighting a fire. The soldiers, who threw sidelong glances at Pierre, got the fire to burn, and placed an iron pot on it, into which they broke some dried bread and put a little dripping. The pleasant odor of greasy viands mingled with the smell of smoke. Pierre sat up and sighed. The three soldiers were eating and talking among themselves, taking no notice of him. "'And who may you be?' one of them suddenly asked Pierre, evidently meaning what Pierre himself had in mind, namely, "'If you want to eat, we'll give you some food. Only let us know whether you are an honest man.' "'I—I—' said Pierre, feeling it necessary to minimize his social position as much as possible, so as to be nearer to the soldiers and better understood by them. "'By rights I am a militia officer, but my men are not here. I came to the battle and have lost them.' "'There now,' said one of the soldiers. Another shook his head. "'Would you like a little mash?' the first soldier asked, and handed Pierre a wooden spoon after licking it clean. Pierre sat down by the fire and began eating the mash, as they called the food in the cauldron, and he thought it more delicious than any food he had ever tasted. As he sat bending greedily over it, helping himself to large spoonfuls and chewing one after another, his face was lit up by the fire and the soldiers looked at him in silence. "'Where have you got to go to?' 
Tell us, said one of them. To Mojesk. You're a gentleman, aren't you? Yes. And what's your name? Peter Kirillich. Well then, Peter Kirillich, come along with us. We'll take you there. In the total darkness, the soldiers walked with Pierre to Mojesk. By the time they got near Mojesk and began ascending the steep hill into the town, the cocks were already crowing. Pierre went on with the soldiers, quite forgetting that his inn was at the bottom of the hill and that he had already passed it. He would not soon have remembered this, such was his state of forgetfulness, had he not halfway up the hill stumbled upon his groom, who had been looking for him in the town and was returning to the inn. The groom recognized Pierre in the darkness by his white hat. "'Your Excellency,' he said, "'why, we were beginning to despair. How is it you are on foot? And where are you going, please?' "'Oh, yes,' said Pierre. The soldier stopped. "'So, you found your folk?' said one of them. "'Well, good-bye, Peter Kirillich, isn't it?' "'Good-bye, Peter Kirillich,' Pierre heard the other voices repeat. "'Good-bye,' he said, and turned with his groom toward the inn. "'I ought to give them something,' he thought, and felt in his pocket. "'No, better not,' said another inner voice. There was not a room to be had at the inn. They were all occupied. Pierre went out into the yard and, covering himself up head and all, lay down in his carriage. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Eight Book Eleven, Chapter Nine of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Nine Scarcely had Pierre laid his head on the pillow before he felt himself falling asleep. But suddenly, almost with the distinctness of reality, he heard the boom, boom, boom of firing, the thud of projectiles, groans and cries, and smelled blood and powder, and a feeling of horror and dread of death seized him. Filled with fright, he opened his eyes and lifted his head from under his cloak. All was tranquil in the yard. Only someone's orderly passed through the gateway, splashing through the mud, and talked to the innkeeper. Above Pierre's head some pigeons, disturbed by the movement he had made in sitting up, fluttered under the dark roof of the penthouse. The whole courtyard was permeated by a strong peaceful smell of stable-yards, delightful to Pierre at that moment. He could see the clear starry sky between the dark roofs of the two penthouses. "'Thank God there is no more of that!' he thought, covering up his head again. Oh, what a terrible thing is fear, and how shamefully I yielded to it! But they, they were steady and calm all the time, to the end, thought he. They, in Pierre's mind, were the soldiers, those who had been at the battery, those who had given him food, and those who had prayed before the icon. They, those strange men he had not previously known, stood out clearly and sharply from everyone else. To be a soldier, just a soldier, thought Pierre as he fell asleep. To enter communal life completely, to be imbued by what makes them what they are. But how to cast off all the superfluous, devilish burden of my outer man? There was a time when I could have done it. I could have run away from my father, as I wanted to. Or I might have been sent to serve as a soldier after the duel with Dolokhov. 
and the memory of the dinner at the English club when he had challenged Dolokhov flashed through Pierre's mind, and then he remembered his benefactor at Torzok. And now a picture of a solemn meeting of the lodge presented itself to his mind. It was taking place at the English club, and someone near and dear to him sat at the end of the table. "'Yes, that is he. It is my benefactor. But he died,' thought Pierre. "'Yes, he died, and I did not know he was alive. How sorry I am that he died, and how glad I am that he is alive again!' On one side of the table sat Anatole, Dolokhov, Nesvitsky, Denisov, and others like them. In his dream the category to which these men belonged was as clearly defined in his mind as the category of those he termed they. And he heard those people, Anatole and Dolokhov, shouting and singing loudly. Yet through their shouting the voice of his benefactor was heard speaking all the time, and the sound of his words was as weighty and uninterrupted as the booming on the battlefield, but pleasant and comforting. Pierre did not understand what his benefactor was saying, but he knew the categories of thoughts were also quite distinct in his dream, that he was talking of goodness and the possibility of being what they were. And they, with their simple, kind, firm faces, surrounded his benefactor on all sides. But though they were kindly, they did not look at Pierre and did not know him. Wishing to speak and to attract their attention, he got up, but at that moment his legs grew cold and bare. He felt ashamed and with one arm covered his legs from which his cloak had in fact slipped. For a moment, as he was rearranging his cloak, Pierre opened his eyes and saw the same penthouse roofs, posts, and yard, but now they were all bluish, lit up, and glittering with frost or dew. "'It is dawn,' thought Pierre. "'But that's not what I want. I want to hear and understand my benefactor's words.' Again he covered himself up with his cloak, but now neither the lodge nor his benefactor was there. There were only thoughts clearly expressed in words, thoughts that someone was uttering or that he himself was formulating. Afterwards, when he recalled those thoughts, Pierre was convinced that someone outside himself had spoken them, though the impressions of that day had evoked them. He had never, it seemed to him, been able to think and express his thoughts like that when awake. To endure war is the most difficult subordination of man's freedom to the law of God," the voice had said. Simplicity is submission to the will of God. You cannot escape from Him. And they are simple. They do not talk, but act. The spoken word is silver, but the unspoken is golden. Man can be master of nothing while he fears death, but he who does not fear it possesses all. If there were no suffering, man would not know his limitations, would not know himself. The hardest thing, Pierre went on thinking, or hearing in his dream, is to be able in your soul to unite the meaning of all. To unite all? he asked himself. No, not to unite. Thoughts cannot be united. But to harness all these thoughts together is what we need. Yes, one must harness them, must harness them he repeated to himself with inward rapture, feeling that these words and they alone expressed what he wanted to say, and solved the question that tormented him. Yes, one must harness. It is time to harness. Time to harness. Time to harness, Your Excellency. Your Excellency, some voice was repeating. We must harness. It is time to harness. 
It was the voice of the groom, trying to wake him. The sun shone straight into Pierre's face. He glanced at the dirty inn-yard at the middle of which soldiers were watering their lean horses at the pump while carts were passing out of the gate. Pierre turned away with repugnance and, closing his eyes quickly, fell back on the carriage-seat. No, I don't want that. I don't want to see and understand that. I want to understand what was revealing itself to me in my dream. One second more, and I should have understood it all. But what am I to do? Harness. But how can I harness everything? And Pierre felt with horror that the meaning of all he had seen and thought in the dream had been destroyed. The groom, the coachman, and the innkeeper told Pierre that an officer had come with news that the French army were already near Mojesk and that our men were leaving it. Pierre got up, having told them to harness and overtake him, went on foot through the town. The troops were moving on, leaving about ten thousand wounded behind them. There were wounded in the yards, at the windows of the houses, and the streets were crowded with them. In the streets, around carts that were to take some of the wounded away, shouts, curses, and blows could be heard. Pierre offered the use of his carriage, which had overtaken him, to a wounded general he knew, and drove with him to Moscow. On the way Pierre was told of the death of his brother-in-law Anatole, and of that of Prince Andrew. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Nine Book Eleven, Chapter Ten of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Ten On the thirtieth of August, Pierre reached Moscow. Close to the gates of the city, he was met by Count Rostopchin's adjutant. We have been looking for you everywhere, said the adjutant. The Count wants to see you particularly. He asks you to come to him at once on a very important matter. Without going home, Pierre took a cab and drove to see the Moscow commander-in-chief. Count Rostopchin had only that morning returned to town from his summer villa at Sokolniki. The ante-room and reception-room of his house were full of officials who had been summoned or had come for orders. Vasilchikov and Platov had already seen the Count, and explained to him that it was impossible to defend Moscow and that it would have to be surrendered. Though this news was being concealed from the inhabitants, the officials, the heads of the various government departments, knew that Moscow would soon be in the enemy's hands, just as Count Rostopchin himself knew it, and to escape personal responsibility they had all come to the governor to ask how they were to deal with their various departments. As Pierre was entering the reception-room, a courier from the army came out of Rostopchin's private room. In answer to questions with which he was greeted, the courier made a despairing gesture with his hand and passed through the room. While waiting in the reception-room, Pierre with weary eyes watched the various officials, old and young, military and civilian, who were there. They all seemed dissatisfied and uneasy. Pierre went up to a group of men, one of whom he knew. After greeting Pierre, they continued their conversation. "'If they're sent out and brought back again later on, it will do no harm. But as things are now, one can't answer for anything.' "'But you see what he writes,' said another, pointing to a printed sheet he held in his hand. "'That's another matter. That's necessary for the people,' 
said the first. "'What is it?' "'Oh, it's a fresh broadsheet.' Pierre took it and began reading. "'His Serene Highness has passed through Mojesk in order to join up with the troops moving toward him, and has taken up a strong position where the enemy will not soon attack him. Forty-eight guns with ammunition have been sent him from here, and His Serene Highness says he will defend Moscow to the last drop of blood, and is even ready to fight in the streets. Do not be upset, brothers, that the law courts are closed. Things have to be put in order, and we will deal with villains in our own way. When the time comes, I shall want both town and peasant lads, and will raise the cry a day or two beforehand, but they are not wanted yet, so I hold my peace. An axe will be useful, a hunting-spear not bad, but a three-pronged fork will be best of all. A Frenchman is no heavier than a sheaf of rye. Tomorrow after dinner I shall take the Iberian icon of the Mother of God to the wounded in the Catherine Hospital, where we'll have some water blessed. That will help them to get well quicker. I, too, am well now. One of my eyes was sore, but now I am on the lookout with both. "'But military men have told me that it is impossible to fight in the town,' said Pierre, "'and that the position—' "'Well, of course! That's what we were saying,' replied the first speaker. "'And what does he mean by, "'One of my eyes was sore, but now I am on the lookout with both?' asked Pierre. "'The Count had a stye,' replied the adjutant, smiling, "'and was very much upset when I told him people had come to ask what was the matter with him.' By the by, Count," he added suddenly, addressing Pierre with a smile, "'we heard that you have family troubles, and that the Countess, your wife—I have heard nothing,' Pierre replied unconcernedly. "'But what have you heard?' "'Oh, well, you know people often invent things. I only say what I heard.' "'But what did you hear?' "'Well, they say,' continued the adjutant, with the same smile, that the Countess, your wife, is preparing to go abroad. I expect it's nonsense." "'Possibly,' remarked Pierre, looking about him absent-mindedly. "'And who is that?' he asked, indicating a short old man in a clean blue peasant overcoat, with a big snow-white beard and eyebrows and a ruddy face. "'He? That's a tradesman. That is to say, he's the restaurant-keeper, Varus Chagin. Perhaps you have heard of that affair with the proclamation.' "'Oh, so that is Varys Chagin,' said Pierre, looking at the firm, calm face of the old man, and seeking any indication of his being a traitor. "'That's not he himself. That's the father of the fellow who wrote the proclamation,' said the adjutant. "'The young man is in prison, and I expect it will go hard with him.' An old gentleman wearing a star and another official, a German wearing a cross round his neck, approached the speaker. "'It's a complicated story, you know,' said the adjutant. "'That proclamation appeared about two months ago. The Count was informed of it. He gave orders to investigate the matter. Gabriel Ivanovitch here made the inquiries. The proclamation had passed through exactly sixty-three hands. He asked one, "'From whom did you get it?' "'From so-and-so.' He went to the next one. "'From whom did you get it?' And so on, till he reached Verestjagin, a half-educated tradesman, you know, a pet of a trader," said the adjutant, smiling. They asked him, "'Who gave it you?' And the point is that we knew from whom he had it from. He could only have had it from the postmaster. 
but evidently they had come to some understanding. He replied, From no one. I made it up myself. They threatened and questioned him, but he stuck to that. I made it up myself. And so it was reported to the Count, who sent for the man. From whom did you get the proclamation? I wrote it myself. Well, you know the Count, said the adjutant cheerfully, with a smile of pride. He flared up dreadfully. And just think of the fellow's audacity, lying, and obstinacy. And the Count wanted him to say it was from Klucharev. I understand, said Pierre. Not at all, rejoined the adjutant in dismay. Klyucharov had his own sins to answer for, without that, and that is why he has been banished. But the point is that the Count was much annoyed. "'How could you have written it yourself?' said he, and he took up the Hamburg Gazette that was lying on the table. "'Here it is. You did not write it yourself, but translated it, and translated it abominably, because you don't even know French, you fool. And what do you think?' "'No,' said he, "'I have not read any papers. I made it up myself. If that's so, you're a traitor, and I'll have you tried, and you'll be hanged. Say from whom you had it. I have seen no papers. I made it up myself. And that was the end of it. The Count had the father fetched, but the fellow stuck to it. He was sent for trial, and condemned to hard labor, I believe. Now the father has come to intercede for him. But he's a good-for-nothing lad. You know that sort of tradesman's son, a dandy and lady-killer. He attended some lectures somewhere, and imagines that the devil is no match for him. That's the sort of fellow he is. His father keeps a cook-shop here by the stone bridge, and you know there was a large icon of God Almighty painted with a scepter in one hand and an orb in the other. Well, he took that icon home with him for a few days, and what did he do? He found some scoundrel of a painter— End of Book Eleven, Chapter Ten. Book Eleven, Chapter Eleven of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Eleven. In the middle of this fresh tale, Pierre was summoned to the Commander in Chief. When he entered the private room, Count Rostopchin, puckering his face, was rubbing his forehead and eyes with his hand. A short man was saying something, but when Pierre entered he stopped speaking and went out. "'Ah, how do you do, great warrior?' said Rostopchin, as soon as the short man had left the room. "'We have heard of your prowess. But that's not the point. Between ourselves, mon cher, do you belong to the Masons?' He went on severely, as though there were something wrong about it which he nevertheless intended to pardon. Pierre remained silent. "'I am well informed, my friend, but I am aware that there are Masons, and I hope that you are not one of those who on pretense of saving mankind wish to ruin Russia.' "'Yes, I am a Mason,' Pierre replied. "'There, you see, mon cher. I expect you know that Monsieur Speransky and Magnitsky have been deported to their proper place. Mr. Klucharev has been treated in the same way, and so have others who, on the plea of building up the Temple of Solomon, have tried to destroy the Temple of their fatherland. You can understand that there are reasons for this, and that I could not have exiled the postmaster had he not been a harmful person. 
It has now come to my knowledge that you lent him your carriage for his removal from town, and that you have even accepted papers from him for safe custody. I like you, and don't wish you any harm, and, as you are only half my age, I advise you, as a father would, to cease all communication with men of that stamp and to leave here as soon as possible." "'But what did Klucharev do wrong, Count?' asked Pierre. "'That is for me to know, but not for you to ask,' shouted Rostopchin. "'If he is accused of circulating Napoleon's proclamation, it is not proved that he did so,' said Pierre, without looking at Rostopchin. "'And Veris Chagin—' "'There we are!' Rostopchin shouted at Pierre louder than before, frowning suddenly. "'Veris Chagin is a renegade and a traitor, who will be punished as he deserves.' said he with the vindictive heat with which people speak when recalling an insult. But I did not summon you to discuss my actions, but to give you advice, or an order if you prefer it. I beg you to leave the town and break off all communication with such men as Klucharev, and I will knock the nonsense out of anybody." But probably realizing that he was shouting at Bezukhov, who so far was not guilty of anything, he added, taking Pierre's hand in a friendly manner, we are on the eve of a public disaster, and I haven't time to be polite to everybody who has business with me. My head is sometimes in a whirl. Well, mon cher, what are you doing personally?" "'Why, nothing,' answered Pierre, without raising his eyes or changing the thoughtful expression of his face. The Count frowned. "'A word of friendly advice, mon cher. Be off as soon as you can. That's all I have to tell you. Happy he who has ears to hear. Good-bye, my dear fellow. Oh, by the by," he shouted through the doorway at Pierre, is it true that the Countess has fallen into the clutches of the Holy Fathers of the Society of Jesus?" Pierre did not answer, and left Rostopchin's room more sullen and angry than he had ever before shown himself. When he reached home it was already getting dark. Some eight people had come to see him that evening—the secretary of a committee, the colonel of his battalion, his steward, his major-domo, and various petitioners. They all had business with Pierre and wanted decisions from him. Pierre did not understand, and was not interested in any of these questions, and only answered them in order to get rid of these people. When left alone at last, he opened and read his wife's letter. They, the soldiers at the battery, Prince Andrew killed, that old man, simplicity is submission to God, suffering is necessary. The meaning of all. One must harness. My wife is getting married. One must forget and understand." And going to his bed, he threw himself on it without undressing, and immediately fell asleep. When he awoke next morning, the major-domo came to inform him that a special messenger, a police officer, had come from Count Rostopchin to know whether Count Bezukhov had left or was leaving the town. A dozen persons who had business with Pierre were awaiting him in the drawing-room. Pierre dressed hurriedly, and, instead of going to see them, went to the back porch and out through the gate. From that time till the end of the destruction of Moscow no one of Bezukhov's household, despite all the search they made, saw Pierre again or knew where he was. End of Book Eleven Chapter Eleven Book Eleven, Chapter Twelve of War and Peace, Volume Three 
by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twelve. The Rostovs remained in Moscow till the first of September, that is, till the eve of the enemy's entry into the city. After Petya had joined Obolinsky's regiment of Cossacks and left for Belayetsurkov, where that regiment was forming, the countess was seized with terror. The thought that both her sons were at the war, had both gone from under her wing, that to-day or to-morrow either or both of them might be killed like the three sons of one of her acquaintances, struck her that summer for the first time with cruel clearness. She tried to get Nicholas back and wished to go herself to join Petya, or to get him an appointment somewhere in Petersburg, but neither of these proved possible. Petya could not return unless his regiment did so, or unless he was transferred to another regiment on active service. Nicholas was somewhere with the army, and had not sent a word since his last letter, in which he had given a detailed account of his meeting with Princess Mary. The Countess did not sleep at night, or when she did fall asleep, dreamed that she saw her sons lying dead. After many consultations and conversations, the Count at last devised means to tranquilize her. He got Petya transferred from Obolensky's regiment to Bezukhov's, which was in training near Moscow. Though Petya would remain in the service, this transfer would give the Countess the consolation of seeing at least one of her sons under her wing, and she hoped to arrange matters for her Petya so as not to let him go again, but always get him appointed to places where he could not possibly take part in a battle. As long as Nicholas alone was in danger, the Countess imagined that she loved her firstborn more than all her other children, and even reproached herself for it. But when her youngest, the scapegrace who had been bad at lessons, was always breaking things in the house and making himself a nuisance to everybody, that snub-nosed Petya, with his merry black eyes and fresh rosy cheeks, where soft down was just beginning to show, when he was thrown amid those big, dreadful, cruel men who were fighting somewhere about something and apparently finding pleasure in it, then his mother thought she loved him more, much more, than all her other children. The nearer the time came for Petya to return, the more uneasy grew the Countess. She began to think she would never live to see such happiness. The presence of Sonia, of her beloved Natasha, or even of her husband irritated her. "'What do I want with them? I want no one but Petya,' she thought. At the end of August the Rostovs received another letter from Nicholas. He wrote from the province of Voronezh where he had been sent to procure remounts, but that letter did not set the countess at ease. Knowing that one son was out of danger, she became the more anxious about Petya. Though by the twentieth of August nearly all the Rostov's acquaintances had left Moscow, and though everybody tried to persuade the countess to get away as quickly as possible, she would not hear of leaving before her treasure, her adored Petya, returned. On the twenty-eighth of August he arrived. The passionate tenderness with which his mother received him did not please the sixteen-year-old officer. Though she concealed from him her intention of keeping him under her wing, Petya guessed her designs, and instinctively fearing that he might give way to emotion when with her, might become womanish as he termed it to himself, 
He treated her coldly, avoided her, and during his stay in Moscow attached himself exclusively to Natasha, for whom he had always had a particularly brotherly tenderness, almost lover-like. Owing to the Count's customary carelessness nothing was ready for their departure by the 28th of August, and the carts that were to come from their Riazan and Moscow estates to remove their household belongings did not arrive till the 30th. From the 28th till the 31st all Moscow was in a bustle and commotion. Every day thousands of men wounded at Borodino were brought in by the Dorogomilov gate and taken to various parts of Moscow, and thousands of carts conveyed the inhabitants and their possessions out by the other gates. In spite of Rostopchin's broadsheets, or because of them, or independently of them, the strangest and most contradictory rumors were current in the town. Some said that no one was to be allowed to leave the city. Others, on the contrary, said that all the icons had been taken out of the churches and everybody was to be ordered to leave. Somebody said there had been another battle after Borodino at which the French had been routed, while others, on the contrary, reported that the Russian army had been destroyed. Some talked about the Moscow militia, which, preceded by the clergy, would go to the Three Hills. Others whispered that Augustin had been forbidden to leave, that traitors had been seized, that the peasants were rioting and robbing people on their way from Moscow, and so on. But all this was only talk. In reality, though the Council of Philly at which it was decided to abandon Moscow had not yet been held, both those who went away and those who remained behind felt, though they did not show it, that Moscow would certainly be abandoned and that they ought to get away as quickly as possible and save their belongings. It was felt that everything would suddenly break up and change, but up to the first of September nothing had done so. As a criminal who is being led to execution knows that he must die immediately, but yet looks about him and straightens the cap that is awry on his head, so Moscow involuntarily continued its wanted life though it knew that the time of its destruction was near when the conditions of life to which its people were accustomed to submit would be completely upset. During the three days preceding the occupation of Moscow, the whole Rostov family was absorbed in various activities. The head of the family, Count Ilya Rostov, continually drove about the city collecting the current rumors from all sides, and gave superficial and hasty orders at home about the preparations for their departure. The Countess watched the things being packed, was dissatisfied with everything, was constantly in pursuit of Petya, who was always running away from her, and was jealous of Natasha, with whom he spent all his time. Sonia alone directed the practical side of matters by getting things packed. But of late Sonia had been particularly sad and silent. Nicholas' letter, in which he mentioned Princess Mary, had elicited, in her presence, joyous comments from the Countess who saw an intervention of Providence in this meeting of the Princess and Nicholas. "'I was never pleased at Bolkonsky's engagement to Natasha,' said the Countess. "'But I always wanted Nicholas to marry the Princess, and had a presentiment that it would happen. What a good thing it would be!' Sonya felt that this was true, that the only possibility of retrieving the Rostov's affairs was by Nicholas marrying a rich woman, and that the Princess was a good match. It was very bitter for her, but despite her grief, or perhaps just because of it, she took on herself all the difficult work of directing the storing and packing of their things and was busy for whole days. 
The Count and Countess turned to her when they had any orders to give. Petya and Natasha, on the contrary, far from helping their parents, were generally a nuisance and a hindrance to everyone. Almost all day long the house resounded with their running feet, their cries, and their spontaneous laughter. They laughed and were gay, not because there was any reason to laugh, but because gaiety and mirth were in their hearts, and so everything that happened was a cause for gaiety and laughter to them. Petya was in high spirits because having left home a boy, he had returned, as everybody told him, a fine young man. Because he was at home. Because he had left Balaya Surkov, where there was no hope of soon taking part in a battle, and had come to Moscow, where there was to be fighting in a few days. And chiefly because Natasha, whose lead he always followed, was in high spirits. Natasha was gay because she had been sad too long and now nothing reminded her of the cause of her sadness, and because she was feeling well. She was also happy because she had someone to adore her. The adoration of others was a lubricant the wheels of her machine needed to make them run freely, and Petya adored her. Above all, they were gay because there was a war near Moscow, there would be fighting at the town gates, arms were being given out, everybody was escaping going away somewhere, and in general something extraordinary was happening, and that is always exciting, especially to the young. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twelve Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.